Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com Hey everybody, it's 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News. I am Lauren, producer, and today we're going to be talking with uh, Tyler Stratford from uh, Canna Advisors. He's the director of client operations over there. But first, we're going to get into a little bit of cannabis news that happened this week. Uh, please welcome our hosts, Miggy from WeedNews.co and Tom from Cannabis Industry Lawyer. What's going on, guys? Oh, you know, it's good. Living the dream. Living the dream. Hey, uh, why don't you bring us up to speed on what you're doing, Miggy? Well, it is Hempfest week, so there's a lot going on over here. I mean, awesome. Yeah. The whole pre staging, the whole week, uh, people are setting up right now for that mile and a half stretch of land for uh, it to be taken over about by 100,000 stoners. That's great. And I'll be one of them. I can't wait to be there. Uh, but I thought the biggest thing, the reason why we let's launched it with, you know, biggest news ever out of August was that. Uh, the biggest thing in marijuana prohibition happened in this month. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Uh, are you talking about the letter? No, I'm or... not talking about, I'm talking like in marijuana prohibition history. The biggest month was oh. August. August, 82 years ago. That's when it officially started at a national level. Of course, the states had already uh, come to the table and, and started banning it because of the jazz musicians and the darn Mexicans. But, you know, Fast forward 82 years and the ABA, the American Bar Association, proud day to be a lawyer yesterday. They've come out and they formally support removal of cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act. That was amazing to see that. That, that was that... huge. Yeah. Uh, uh, Keith Strop from Normal sent out to the, the NLC, the, the Normal Legal Council or something like that, I think is the acronym, uh, an email about it last evening. And it was just great to see that. And then you saw the... Um, did you get that letter from normal from representative Nagel? Nagler. Nagler. Is it Gerald yeah. Nadler? Uh, Ralph Nadler, isn't it? Gerald Nadler. Gerald Nadler. Nadler. Clearly, we're neither one of us are from New York, but that's or where he And he's on the committee in the in the house, and he's now formally telling the people at uh, normal that they need to legalize in. Congress. And you know, one of the reasons why August is one of the lightest months when it comes to federal legalization news for cannabis legalization? Because the sun's out. Everybody wants to be out. That's right. Ain't nobody in. Ain't nobody in Washington, D.C. right now because it is on holiday. They call it recess. Congress yeah. 
place you can go and become a very important, well-heeled person and still get recess. Man, it's, I it's nice to see that the lawyers make a stance, but I mean, how long do you think that'll stand? Because even at one point, the AMA had a uh, pro-cannabis statement and then, uh, you know, Fucking like it was like 50 years later, they came out against it. Well, I just think that because of the way that they have this thing, I mean, you have an industry that's emerging, it's growing, and there's just no denying that. And because of that, then you have all these problems that are, are hurting that industry. And it's just because it's continues to grow, these problems continue to spread. And so money and influence start to pour in. And then you have people saying, well, we really need to do something about this. We really need to change it. And that's very true. So when Congress gets back here in a couple of weeks and they're sitting up on the Hill again in Washington, D.C., we all need to like really make sure that we're calling them and saying, hey, support that Safe Banking Act, because that Safe Banking Act is going to help cannabis businesses in, in Illinois, in Seattle. I'm sorry, and not. Washington State and also in New York, New Jersey and Pennsylvania next year uh, get bank accounts so they can actually access banking services. Can you imagine if you had to do all your business in cash, like with private investors? You know, I'm going to start a pizzeria. Oh, you better go talk to a bank. No, no, no. I can't talk to a bank. It's illegal to bank pizza. Well, I don't know if you saw, but there's an article in Forbes. I'm trying to find it again, but uh they estimated by 2030 the cannabis industry. There's a it's a big number from 50 it billion to 200 billion. It can, well, I've seen 132 billion, and I'm assuming the 132 billion doesn't take into consideration the uh, only the recreational usage. So, like just the THC version of the cannabis, as opposed to like the entire rest of the plant, which uh, is where a lot of those billions of dollars may come. I mean, the uh, hemp that we're going to grow in 10 years that's specifically designed to make plastics. That is some genetics that I can't wait to see. Well, according to Mike Tyson, 40K of that a month is just from his ranch. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Mike Tyson smokes $40,000 worth of cannabis a month. That is I, crazy. I, I don't know how much bullshit. I mean, like, how expensive is your weed if you're smoking hey, say, Have you ever heard of, like, those cannabis cigars, like, from Gold Leaf? They're, like, $400, $600 cannabis cigars. They look like a cigar, but they're, like, made of dank and then they have uh, a fan leaf and like uh, a hash or, or something sticky to like stick it all together and give it a nice smooth burn and they're, they're so 600 you're smoking one of those there you go that's that's tens of thousands of dollars a month but it, it would be smoke two of them a day smoke two of those a day that's twelve hundred dollars 30 days there you go i don't know but did you know there was 1,170 cannabis-related bills moving through state legislatures and Congress for the 2019 session right now? That sounds amazing. That does sound amazing. And you can follow it all on Marijuana Moments' custom-built cannabis legislation tracker for just $25 a month. Big shout-out to Marijuana Moment on this. They are a great site, and they produce a lot of uh, topical and relevant content. For example, what's that? What's the deal with, um, yeah. What's the deal with uh, uh, Illinois finalizing their medical? What's what's that about? Oh, Illinois finalized the medical, and it was the, the great in the sense that they have now made it permanent. It was a pilot program. A lot of these things get started oh. as pilot programs, and now it is a permanent program. Not only is it a permanent program, they added several more conditions, and they tweaked it a little bit. So if you have a lifelong condition, you no longer need to do those renewals. Wow. They added pain. So they've opened the quote unquote floodgates for using cannabis as medicine in the state of Illinois, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, J.B. Pritzker signed the bill yesterday, I believe. 
And so now these, but it's, it's not all, uh, uh, well, anyway, have you ever heard of tobacco 21? No. Okay. So the only like real thing, and nobody really objects, unless of course you need your inhalable medicine and you're less than 21 years old right now in the state of Illinois, like in other States, it, it there's tobacco 21 that's in play. And so you're not allowed to sell nicotine products or any like vapables or smokable products to anybody who's under 21. This includes uh, vape vapable or smokable cannabis, medical cannabis. And so uh, some uh, patients that are quite young, but find efficacy in inhaling the cannabis vapor uh, are upset that now they're told that they can only have edibles until they're 21. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, Illinois, they get so much right and so much wrong at the same time. Well, that's just par for the course when it comes to the marijuana laws, because that's why they called it marijuana so that they could put it all over on us. Because you remember back in 1937, you were there. Uh, I wasn't. Um, I was, <laughs> I could have been. Uh, but uh, that was when they changed it to marijuana. And so William Woodward, uh, who was a doctor and a lawyer from the AMA, went down and his testimony in front of the congressional hearing uh, was as follows. Marijuana is not the appropriate name. We don't know what you're trying to re regulate here, but everybody in the scientific field calls this cannabis. And they said, get out of here, buddy. Get out of here. And they lied about him later. And then eventually in August 2nd, 1937, marijuana is, stamp back when new effect. Now, when did the, the marijuana tax stamp kick in? Uh, that was the actual. It became effective in October of 37. So that's that's kind of like when it kicked in. Uh, and so, I mean, it, and then it wasn't I don't know who was arrested immediately or how long it took before it really started getting enforced. But um yeah, by 42, it was out, cannabis was out of the pharmacopoeia and LaGuardia was doing his thing. But, you know, uh, interestingly enough, it got declared unconstitutional. We'll see, man. We'll see. And then did you see that uh, the big hemp news this month? I'm sorry, this week, which may be the biggest hemp news of the month, to be honest. The unfortunate hailstorm in Oregon. The hailstorm in Oregon that took out millions probably of dollars worth of hemp and wouldn't it be nice if that hemp was insurable? Uh, sometimes it is. It's not necessarily as insurable as any other crop. Yet, we're still waiting on the uh, federal guidance that hopefully is coming this fall. So we'll have rules as to how industrial hemp is going to be treated. And then we'll have crop insurance by the next season. But I, I have seen hemp insurance. Uh, I think I've sent you a link. What, yeah, what, yeah. Are, what are they covering at that point? Well, there you go. Because you have to understand, and th this is me being a cynical former bank lawyer, um, uh, the, po the point of insurance companies is to make policies and charge people for those contracts and then deny claims so that you make a profit. Uh, of course, that is a huge gross mischaracterization of the actual insurance industry because it's actually a fairly noble concept where everybody pools their resources. And then in case something does go bad, you can make a payout to somebody in need. Great. But how do you keep them profitable? Well, you deny claims, and then you force people to fight. So let's say that they tried to make a claim on that hemp crop insurance that they had for hail damage. How's that going to go? You know, is it going to be smooth? Is it going to be like, oh, no, it, act of God, force majeure, read the back of your ticket. Well, then also the market value, at what point? Because, I mean, with the high and lows that we've been hitting, you know, you're not going to get the top dollar that you asked for. No, but I hear that because we have 18,000 acres in Illinois. And so there's so many thousands of acres out there that the price of CBD is just really falling and you think it's low now wait until next year after people are able to farm it like they can really farm it so anybody who wants to grow it is basically going to be growing it by next year 
and then will CBD uh, still be the flavor of the month in um, uh, holistic wellness? No, for sure, for sure. Uh, we got uh, Jersey now announces hemp cultivation is now legal. Good for Jersey, man. I'm glad that Jersey has cultivated hemp because that is important. I can't believe that they they haven't caught on. But I mean, like they 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 made it no longer a crime federally, and they also said that you can do interstate commerce with it. But uh, you know that basically means that the supremacy clause needs to be there. So if you have a state that is treating it uh, locally as a crime, well, that's those are the people that are going to be enforcing that law. The federal government's not going to come along and enforce the law, and then you have to actually go to a case. And that was probably one of the cases that came to uh, Indiana, which we should check back in on. But they uh, banned smokable hemp flour, which is kind of going around right now. They tried to do it in North Carolina. And I think the uh, kill the bill movement that I saw on Facebook about that uh, proved efficacious. And they were able to get rid of the uh, limitation as to smokable hemp flour, because that's where a lot of the money is in the CBD. I mean, you you lit, provided that the COAs are, are correct and they're correct. Uh, then you are literally getting the medicine straight from the uh, source. That's so crazy that uh, you guys ban uh, smokable hemp, but at the same time, I just posted in YouTube our uh, uh, comments that uh, I just learned that we have a CBD farmer's market here in Washington. So, uh, you know, people can, as long as they have uh, proper extraction methods and uh, infuse things properly, uh, go to the market and sell their wares. That's uh, great. So do you guys, how do you do your licenses for uh, extraction methodologies? Do you guys have like processor licenses in, in Washington? So the I-502 structure, they do for concentrates. But see, I don't know how that works for the, uh, the actual CBD product because Washington State Liquor Control Board is trying to control all things cannabis. Uh, and that includes uh, glass shops that are adjacent to the, the cannabis stores. A lot of these places, uh, they don't have them in this. First, the rule was you couldn't have uh paraphernalia in your fucking shop which i mean what do you we're gonna like uh you can't have shot glasses in a liquor store you know i it was a very weird nuanced thing that's actually gone past but most stores have accommodated to where they just open up a whole section another store with like their t-shirts and the swag that they're going to sell uh but not cannabis and uh there's a lot of cbd products in those stores but they're not regulated by the lcb oh um, that's strange uh, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't really make any sense, but you have to draw a line somewhere. Uh, now, this is pretty sweet, though. Did you? It's Gerald Nadler's uh, or Nadler's, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. His comment as to it really gets to what's hot right now in uh, legal cannabis. And he said uh, America has a moral responsibility to pass legislation to end prohibition of marijuana and take on the oppression at the heart of the war on drugs. Boom. And so he's, he's proud to work with Normal to create a more just national marijuana policy, which that's that's really not going to be hard. The current mar federal marijuana policy is anything but just. But that's really what it's at. I mean, like this uh, social equity uh, experiment that we're about to start doing here in Illinois is going to create. I mean, that's going to I have a, an article due uh, next week for the Cannabis Law Reporter. And so that's going to be really it, where I have to explain that there's this new third pillar in legal cannabis, and that might be what really puts us over the hump because they're taking this moral um, high ground by trying to rectify the problems that it all caused. I mean, look look at your shirt. Dude, and not just and in the social equity of it all, like with minorities, I mean, there's an article that just came out about how uh, 
black uh, a million black farmers lost land, you know, in the 1920s. So there's a there's a whole balance of wrongness that's in our American history that we have to accept and face. You know, all this BS about making America great again. It's like you know how you make it great. You just make us great the first time. So we're trying to get there by giving everybody a fair chance. You know, uh, again, that's my issue of home grow. If everybody had a chance to plant the seed, everybody would have a chance to have a business. You learn through experience. You don't just, you know. You, well, that's true. But I don't. I don't want to have purely unregulated businesses that are out there. I mean, I really don't think Oklahoma, with twenty five hundred dollars in a pulse that gets you a cannabis license, is the way to go. But the question is, what is regulation? You know, my, my thing is lab testing or lab regulation is regula is plant regulation. So if you're going to be in a, uh, a market, a consumer market, uh, just require them to have lab testing and, and then put all the information out there. You know, pesticides, uh, metals, um, you know, people still smoke cigarettes and people will still smoke shitty weed. So it doesn't matter. Oh, what. I cannot type. Uh, you know, most of the things that don't go right are the ones that when you're trying, just like, I'm going to text this person really quickly. You're not. You're not. But that was that's that's actually what our guest is going to be talking on about when we have him on. He's going to be discussing how cannabis consultants can help people at gain entry into these emerging markets and also the uh, tapestry that is social equity that they're going to be doing and how that's coming into play for a lot of the uh, licenses that are out there now. I know like in California, they're, they're trying to do it. And that's, that's a question that I actually have because I have people that ask me about Michigan versus uh, Illinois a lot. Uh, and Michigan did it kind of like how California did. Um, but how do they do it in Washington state? Is there a finite number of licenses or is it by the state or does the municipality have the right to set the number of licenses? No, it's state licenses, municipalities, they've been putting up uh, moratoriums. And so that's been kind of putting a squash on the uh, situation for somebody who has a license. They buy a building, they get ready to uh, start a grow. And now that county or city, whatever, put a moratorium on. And now what are you going to do? Because all your information, all the license stuff, the address and everything is attached to that location. Right. And now you have to move uh, uh, and more of another process of relocating. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of funny how Washington State, our, our social justice state, um, kind of neglects the whole social equity aspect of uh, the industry. You know, I think I told you before, I know a guy, Tyler Merquat, who has a federal marijuana charge, but he can't be involved in our uh, uh, marijuana business because of that federal charge right marijuana that was a that was a, a video that i just did over the weekend was on how they treat these things and they, they can take the the crimes of people in their past and then how does that that impact their licensing requirement in illinois they do uh, a merit-based kind of approach to it that you have to disclose it and then you have to like provide evidence of your rehabilitation and your good moral character and all these types of things and so I, it would be interested to see if they have you know, similar things in other states that will come now where it's not a binary decision where like, oh, you have a, a previous crime, you're out. Now, a lot of that uh, is usually they, they make a distinction because there is a distinction between a crime in which you're trafficking an illicit substance to make you know, tax free, high profit income and right. as opposed to like, you know, we're going to go get her, throw her in that van because she is a, what's the name of the richest family you can think of right now? Shit, man. <laughs> oh, the shit man's? Okay, because she is a shit man. And, and that guy has got a lot of cash, the shit man's. 
This is a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, Tyler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, I got to bring Tyler in on this. He uh, wants to get in this, on this yeah. conversation. Awesome. Tyler, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. Uh, Tyler Stratford here, Director of Client Operations for Can Advisors. We're based out of uh, Boulder, Colorado. We've been operating as Can Advisor for about six years. I'm, uh, I'm 31. Um, I'm a cannabis industry veteran of about nine years and a, uh, an army veteran. I got out in 2011. Nice. Cool, man. So like if I was trying to get into the industry for the first time and I wasn't sitting on any licenses in any other states, but I'm a business guy, what would I gain from having a conversation with the Canada advisors? Yeah, so as you can see, this map back here reflects uh, the states that we've done work in. And really that means states where they've had a competitive license application process that is either limited um, in number or by municipality, um, sometimes by square footage and even number of plants. Um, but basically good strategies to get in the industry are to pay attention to really any active license application processes that are, that are going on across the United States. Um, some states do not have open or closed license application processes, for instance, Colorado, as long as you have control of the property, local approval, and uh, you're not a criminal, which I, I know you guys discussed here, um, you can you can basically get in the industry as an operator. When you say you're not a criminal, what does that mean? Do they make discrepancies between types of crimes? You know, there's somebody who is like going 125 miles an hour in a 70 all right, well, that's a crime, but is that going to be a preclusionary crime? And I'm sorry about using the word preclusionary. No, it's okay. It's, it's lawyer speak. We need oh, yeah. it. Um, but basically, most of these states in their license application processes, whether they're competitive or not, will outline what the, the kind of barriers to entry are. In Colorado, I believe at one point it was you couldn't have had a felony in the last 10 years and you couldn't have had a violent felony in the last seven or something like that. And if it had happened prior to that, you did have to disclose it and basically show the records of exactly what happened and whatnot. Most states have tried to tackle it in, in that fashion in that you can't have a certain offense within a time frame. Right, yeah. They have that built into the Illinois statute, but then they kind of point you to another statute that says, well, if you do have this past, uh, you have to explain how you've actually uh, rehabilitated yourself and why it's you have a good moral character and all these types of things. So I'm not sure if there's a similar um, uh, issue in the, the Colorado law, but hey, so it sounds like Colorado is kind of like California in the sense that there's no limitation on the actual physical number of licenses, which is different than like in Illinois, where it's, hey, next year, 75 dispensaries, that's it. 40 craft grows, that's it, you know? Well, I mean, I bet you they expand on that eventually. Oh, absolutely, but they gotta start somewhere, you know? Yeah, you know, and honestly, that's my biggest issue with this whole competitive license application process. And there are areas in, in uh, California where there are competitive, oh, like yeah. West Hollywood, you know, things like right. that. Um, but, but that's the big issue for me is because the underlying thing here is that with this limited number of licensure and with the regulators in each state wanting to, they're, they're having to pin the success of their entire program on these people that they are giving licenses to. So right. they have to Pick and winners. Be, yeah, they, they have to know that they're going to be successful business people in this business and that they're going to follow the rules. That's so fortunately, right. to be a successful business person, a lot of states, it means that you have to have a lot of money. And that's what we see as a major limiting factor 
to the haves and the versus the have-nots. You mean the winners uh, and the losers? Yeah, basically. Yeah, if take a look at New Jersey's uh, recent, the, the second round of medical license applications. Every single one of the people that won is a current multi-state operator in another state in the Northeast, at least. And well, they that talk doesn't about, really help with the social equity now, does it? <laughs> no. And, you know, it, what's interesting about the social equity programs and incentives that they're putting in these applications, you get more points, for instance, if you're from a historically damaged group, a disadvantaged group, person of color, um, someone from the LGBTQ community, a veteran. Really, you can get extra points on most of these applications for that. The issue for me is the throughput and the accountability. There uh, places, cities like Oakland have put in uh, programs that are very outlined for what exactly qualifies you to receive incentives for being historically disadvantaged. But some states like uh, Maryland, their their process for trying to include social equity was fraught with legis- or was fraught with uh, lawsuits afterwards, and that really stagnated the program there. So, I think. What's really important to focus on here is, you know, with the thousands some odd bills that are going through local and, you know, state legislation, um, we need to focus on the throughput and the accountability for actually having historically disadvantaged groups become owners of this industry, not have a seat at the table, but a chance to own the damn table for once, right? Yeah, and- that's that's something that I get to have conversations with my clients about because they are looking at the social equity rubric that in Illinois, that it's going to be 20% of the points for your social equity plan and how you're going to be an applicant for it. That's a non-substantial. I mean, it's it's a 20% of a test is, is something that you should focus on. And um, from that, there's really just three ways in Illinois. And it'd be interesting to see how other states are like phrasing this. And I think Illinois took it and maybe they were looking at Maryland going like, well, you we have to avoid these types of lawsuits that might come for, for discriminating. And they made it like, you know, if you are arrested for cannabis, that's that triggers your social equity uh, app status. Or if you're in these what they call disproportionately impacted areas. But that has created like, some consternation, at least in my head, because we have to wait for a map from the state of Illinois because they have these these criteria that are in it. And the hey, criteria- Tyler, for, for being someone who's been involved in all these states, uh, how many states do have a social equity requirement? I, you know, Illinois is the first one I heard of that said, hey. We want to try and help. I mean, an actual fund that's there for people to try and extract from. And yeah. Besides LA, yeah. Um, you know, Oakland, Illinois, Maryland, um, and, and a lot of states will handle it in different ways. So Arkansas definitely did. Um, I believe Ohio did. Missouri. And those three states are actually handling it as uh, regionals, like regions. So if you're located in an area that is below the poverty line or has certain economic disadvantages, you get more points for being located in that area. So I think there's a lot of different methods that people, that regulators and legislators are trying to solve this issue. What I don't see are um, uh, organizations being given authority or even just being asked to come to the table and say, how can we make this better? Minority Cannabis Business Association, the New Leaf Project, um, are just two that are at the top of t- top of my mind right now for organizations I think should be brought to the table to really help with these these laws. So you said that's New Leaf, and what was the other organization? It's the New Leaf Project and the Minority Cannabis Business Association, not to be confused with NCBA, which is the National Cannabis Law Association, which I'm sure you're familiar. 
Well, there's that. But then there's also the National uh, Cannabis Industry Association, which is another another association. There's a lot of these association groups that are going on. And that's that's a sign of a vibrant industry. Good. Still well, the SCIA is good because they uh, they actually have lobbyists that are out there trying to push uh, different uh, you know agendas. I mean, who's out there for us trying to get, you know, <clears throat> I never have a problem with big money being involved because big money is going to help change the law because big money doesn't want to go to jail either. Big money so, also is going to lose money. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I think we're all of the same mindset that we don't want this to be the same 1% that controls all the other industries that we dislike. Yeah, but like if I'm, when I'm advising them on like, you know, there's really two lanes in Illinois and you just mentioned in Jersey where they gave it to all MSOs. Uh, there's the MSO lane and there's the craft lane. And uh, there really is no competition between the two because you're just totally priced. Out. I mean, like you can't grow. Like even if you max out what you are as a, uh, as a craft grower, completely max it out. You're just a tiny fraction of one of the MSO licenses. So, I mean, it's just night and day. I mean, like the, the, the craft grows are going to be so small that they're probably even going to be priced out of a lot of extracts for the first year of their operations. I think as the industry uh, advances and becomes more mature and more educated that the consumers will too. You know, um, I would consider myself a connoisseur, somebody who just looks for a higher quality, higher range, higher potency, higher level of um, production value, et cetera, in my products. And that I'm 10 percent of basically what the sales or what the uh, customer population is now. But I make up 60 percent of the sales. And I think that the 10 percent is just going to keep growing. The more educated people become about the products that they want, you know, there will always be a market for Bud Light. Right. One in four beers in the world is a Bud Light. But uh, I can't tell you the last time I had something that wasn't a craft brew. I, I live in Boulder, Colorado. So that right. might be part of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's my whole point with like I was saying with uh, lab regulation is plant regulation. You know, as long as uh, if if everybody because small growers testing is expensive. And, and so uh, you have a batch, you send it out. If that's a requirement to test for the metals, the pesticides to be involved in the market. That should all be, that's all there needs to be, you know, and people are going to, like you said, drink Budweiser still or smoke cigarettes. People don't really care as much about terpenes or tea, you know, you and I as a connoisseur would be like, oh, I want more of a myrcene or lavender type feel. I want to be more mellow this time, opposed to somebody's like, hey, what's the highest THC you got? Oh, mm -hmm. and uh, my toe hurts. I need CBD. Or I have $23.58. How much weed can I get for that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe just enough. I want your heaviest gram, please. Your heaviest gram. Oh, there you go. We rounded this one up to 1.1. But with uh, cannabis, what else do you guys do? Uh, so you you help with the branding. You help with the. Do you help with the grow? Yeah. So we'll actually we'll help anybody who who touches the plant. Um, that means cultivator processing, any kind of order fulfillment, infusion, um, edible production. Uh, both on cannabis and uh, I would call it just marijuana and him side, if we're going to use those terms to de delineate, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we'll help get people those licenses. We'll help them get up and running. So startup services will take them from uh, mom and pop shop to multi-location or from multi-location to multi-state. And then our, uh, our first clients in Connecticut, one of the original licensees up there, actually just had an exit this January valued at like 81 million. Wow. So we try to help people through um, all the way through their cannabis journey. So you have an idea about a business you want to have in the cannabis industry through, Hey, 
I want to sell it and retire. Yeah, that's really important that you have uh, approached it from uh, the exit strategy or at least the succession planning in mind. And I because these business plans need to be in there into their your application. It sounds like, you know, get a wealthy guy as well is very important and an excellent operator. But uh, that's the question that I have to have them, you know, with them. Like, so how long you be operating this? What are you going to do if this happens? What are you going to do if that happens? They're usually like, I want to sell weed. I'm like, I, I get that. I, I understand. Good. Uh, but, you know, how do we get you this license? Yeah. You know, we're, um, we're using the word craft. And, you know, most people who's a, a homegrow type person are going to call themselves a craft grower. Um, but we actually have a, a question from somebody, just a small personal grower. It says, I'm an organic grower. I'm really passionate about cultivation and want to pursue it. Unfortunately, I'm not able to fund myself nor know what I can do to pursue it. Any suggestions? So there's somebody who wants to get in the industry, but, you know, it costs money for seeds, uh, experience and all this stuff. Uh, what would you suggest? Uh, there, are, there are a number of uh, talent recruiting companies out there. I like to say cannabis is its own world and we need people of all different job types and experiences. When I was in the army, it was the same thing. You like to think they're all soldiers, but there are lawyers and paper pushers and bullet counters and chefs and all that. Um, so the best way to get into the industry as an individual, if you're not incredibly well capitalized or incredibly well experienced, is, is do your best to leverage the experience you have in a way that the industry needs. You don't necessarily have to grow the plant. Um, you don't necessarily have to dispense or extract it. You can be an ancillary company that supports the industry. And, uh, you know, worst I say worst comes to worst, and this is how I got my experience. Go work the labor intensive side. Go be a, a tremor first and work your way up to being um, a, a grow manager, maybe then a master grower. That's, that is how I got my start. I, I sort of fell into an existing operation and then worked really hard. But that's, that's kind of what it takes is um, educating yourself and finding a way to serve the industry with the experience you already have. And the other exposure and knowledge will come with the passion that you have to enter the industry. All the knowledge that I have has, yes, come through experience and working, but also through self-education. You highlighted marijuana moment, Tom Angel. He has a great daily email that is just incredible. I get so much knowledge from. Um, that's, that's honestly one of the ways. Uh, attending seminars, um, gosh, training programs like uh, at Tricom Institute. I can't say that that um, they're like accredited in the way that universities are accrediting degrees and courses and whatnot, but there is a ton of wealth of knowledge at, at those two locations. Um, very basic compliance knowledge can be attained through companies like Cannabis Trainers. Um, and, and to be honest, if you're an executive or a C-suite level, H2 Talent is a really good executive level recruiting firm. But, but basically, the point is here is to find that niche and fill it. Um, and then the goal of all of us in this industry is to continue our own growth and education. We're somewhat hindered in the United States because of the lack of federal legalization, thus our somewhat restricted barriers to researching it. But it's out there. The knowledge is out there. No, I agree. Uh, Low-level entry is always what I tell people. I mean, if you want to get into the structured uh, market, you know, either be, like you said, a trimmer or a bud tender. That's a huge way to enter into and learn the experience of yeah. uh, the infrastructure. 
And that's um, yeah, that's actually what I tell my uh, the people that are getting into the social equity aspect for the craft grow because a craft grow will be able to qualify for the third uh, prong of the social equity. That's you know ten full time employees or more. Fifty one percent are uh, you know either arrested or live in one of these uh, economically distressed areas. And because of that, there's going to be a lot of job fairs there, so they can start there. And then sometimes when we're having the exit strategy about it, I'll be like, well, look, you're going to build this nice little craft thing. You're going to have about 25 employees. You might be able to grow a little bit bigger. You're going to get limited on it because the licenses are very, very exclusive. You can only have three over the course of these years. But what happens? Because $3 million a year is a fine business, especially if you build a good brand. Uh, what happens if you uh, your exit strategy in five years is to sell it to the employees as an ESOP? And then now you have all these uh, these people that are really been locked out of the industry and especially the ones that are for the social equity. Boom. Then they're getting the ownership. But are they going to approve that plan if I put it in front of the United States, not the United States, the state of Illinois? And and I like I like that. Are they going to approve it? And what's the accountability moving forward? Not who enforces that, but who who makes sure that they're following the things that they said they were going to do in right. getting those incentives. And I think that's. That's a second part of what we need. Um, and I, I agree, you know, we talked about organizations like NCIA um, and even, um, gosh, what is it? Oh, the Cannabis Trade Federation. You know, they, they are even forming groups and even just this year, uh, NCIA formed a, a social, social, what is it? Equity, diversion and inclusion um, group to actually have a say. So they're gathering people from around the industry um, someone from Canada's on that. And, you know, honestly, I think that's, that's a good, that's a good path. I think uh, moving forward in that way is, is not only going to help people of all different backgrounds gain access to the industry, but really put it into perspective on the damage that the war on drugs has done because it, it was not a war on drugs. It was a war on race and poverty. It was a war on, a war on addiction. It's a war on human condition. You know, it's it, you, as LaGuardia said back in the forties, when his study, showed that the 1937 tax tap act was crap you can't regulate a morality and expect it to win i mean like you, you can't how do you legislate a morality it makes no sense it's you're you're talking about people's emotions and you're making rules on it and these rules are hurting people and they're actually going to prison and they're actually dying and then it's it's a blight on the community well, look at this now. I mean, 2019, uh, it's been, what, 80 years of illegalization? Billions of dollars dropped on against the plant, and the plant's still winning. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you can only deceive so much for so long, and then people realize, oh, well, uh, maybe it's not bad. Maybe I won't turn to a bat, or maybe I won't, you know. Yeah. Oh, I think gosh. it's, yeah. Go it's ahead. almost funny that we're, we're trying to define now our relationship with cannabis that we've had for thousands and thousands of years. We've literally co-evolved with this plant to become desirable to each other. Um, check out uh, the Desire of Botany or the Botany of Desire. Oh, no, that's a great, great thing. Is that Michael Pollan? Yeah, Michael Pollan. Yeah. Good guy. Great writer. Our bodies don't have a method of cannabinoid system. It has an endocannabinoid system. You know, yeah. we're naturally part of it. Vitamin THC. Yeah, there is that. I like accusing people of that they're cannabis deficient when I think that they're acting like Richard Nixon. You know, really, really <laughs> paranoid and uh, just think everybody's out to get them. Like, you need some CBD, man. Some. It, it definitely is smoke one. Yeah. So let's see. We got the. Um, <clears throat> What else do you think besides for like social equity, like how, uh, you know, you got the, the Marijuana Minority Business Association, 
Um, but like, what else can be done to help out? You know, cannabis is the only industry that has people locked in jail, you know, like presently. Uh, does anybody know how when prohibition ended with alcohol, how, how did that get treated? The people that were in jail at the time for that. Does anybody uh, know? I don't know. I'm just curious. Well, they still go to jail for alcohol. They just call it DUIs now, and then you get released the next day. But you know, they, there'll still be arrests after it's all legalized everywhere because they put all these uh, usage and limitation requirements, like uh, possession limits of an ounce. How are they going to enforce that? It's still a crime. It's, I mean, like you have too much. Arrest them. Yeah, I think we got to put onus on the on the individual person. I mean, we do it with alcohol, with anything else they keep at their house that could kill you. Right. That you could ingest. Cigarettes, you know, hey, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I think it, it becomes a responsibility of us as citizens to be educated. Like we all we all remember what it was like to learn how to drink. We might not remember that's what we were doing, mm -hmm. but we learned how to drink, what we like, what we don't like, what agrees and disagrees with us. And I am a true believer that there's a cannabis product out there for everybody. Um, not to say that there's an alcoholic product out there for everybody, but in, in that way, in becoming a regulated market, I like to ask people, you know, who who have had bad experiences with cannabis, like, okay, where are you? They usually say a market that's not regulated or I ask where they got that brownie from. And, you know, I say, okay, spend some time in a regulated market where things get tested and approved and where things are dosed appropriately. That's what I was going to say. How many milligrams was in that cookie? Yeah. And they'd be like, I just ate it. You know, I'm like, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Um, well, know yeah. too, uh, you know, people who have bad experience, what was your bad experience? You know, I had too much. And so I had a panic attack or, you know, I just didn't have any effect on me, you know, when I ate that cookie or I just slept for 12 hours. I mean, there's definitely, what was your bad experience? We can work around that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I, I always use more caution. People come to me a lot just as an individual and say, Hey, I, I have issues with this. What weed should I try for that? My first questions are, are you prone to anxiety? You know, um, gosh, what what is your diet like even? Because that'll really affect kind of what their dosage should be or what is. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. But I think that's getting into the, uh, you know, how would you like to feel question that bud tenders are now asking less than, oh, you know, you really want, we got this sticky perps or something. Uh, I mean, the, yeah. uh, experience itself is changing so much more. I mean, I remember 20 years ago when I'd be in college uh, and we would you'd have Mexican brickweed or you'd have uh, dank that somebody took the stuck their neck out and grew. And then you'd have to kind of trust them on the strains. I mean, like you, you'd have to also trust them on the methodologies that they were using illicitly uh, to get that flower that way. So it's it's great knowing that now you have this ability to actually get into the plant and study it and say, wow, this these terpene profiles that make people feel like this and these things. And then that's some uh, God's gift. Is that right, Miggy? Yeah. What's the terpene profile and God's gift? Um, a little smoky. A little <laughs> gassy. Little gassy. A, little, uh, a, little, a little woody, I think. Uh, it's pretty nice. I think it's more of a sedative. Uh, lock you in. Uh, this is my Apex Legends gaming tonight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just watching an awesome uh, YouTube on the Rudalis plant. Have you guys uh, explored any about that with the auto, auto flowering and how auto flowering might kind of uh, manufacture and throw down the price of a gram in the future? 
Yeah. Um, you know, cannabis ruderalis being the third type more discovered in Siberia, Russian areas of the world really is a, it's a smaller, stockier plant. Um, it seems to be like, I, I like to call it like a super indica in that it's, it's there to weather the storm and to push out its genetics quickly. So, you know, this right now people are at, you know, four or five turns a year, meaning that's how many potential harvests they're getting. Right. With autumn flowering, you can get, you can get a lot more. You can get six, maybe six and a half, depending on how many, how long you're vegging your plants for. But the well, cross between and traditional, um, indica, indica and, and, uh, Indica, you know, strains is really helping, I think, advance the, the cultivation side of the industry, becoming more um, just easier, sturdier plants to grow for growers, as well as being a shortened life cycle. Well, autoflower is great for dummies. I mean, you just throw it out there and, and, and kind of self-regulates. Uh, but I've heard that autoflowering also doesn't have a, a strong profile, just like we were talking about last week about LED lights. You know, I, you know, every, different strains react differently. And, and Purists will always say, like, ah, the new stuff ain't like the old stuff. Well, just recently, Gary Vee just had a podcast where he talks about, like, how to win the cannabis industry. And then one of the things he threw out there was uh, uh, do everything, you know, which, you know, throw everything out there and just learn from it, get better after the fact. You know, whereas I want to have a really good strain representing me before I throw it out there and then learn the hard way that, yeah, not everybody liked it or. You know, I want to find that one that just knocks my socks off. But very, very. I think everybody should have R and D going on. Like, if you're not cycling through some strains that you're trying to stabilize or see if people like, you know, I, I think you're you don't have you're losing that edge a little bit. You're not the tip of the spear anymore. Yeah. Speaking of that R and D aspect of it, I mean that is so real because when you talk to people the first time when they're getting in, they're thinking about getting into the cannabis industry, and they find out that it's not just this simplistic drug deal that they've built it up in their head as being. Uh, it's, it's actually a very complicated industry that's moving extremely fast at all of its levels, from its genetic to its supply chains to even its regulation. And then it's, it's just, it's the fire hose. It's too much for some people when they're first getting into it. I'm like, yeah, just, you know, come with me. I mean, you'll see, it'll take you a few months and you're going to have to put in a lot of time to really understand all these little facets. But if you want in the industry, you kind of have to understand the industry. Well, you're from the R&D side, dude. I've been smoking for 30 years, right? And I look at this, I couldn't tell if it was grown inside, outside or whatever, right? But mm -hmm. some of those guys who do grow, they'd be like, oh no, man, that, that was definitely growing inside because you see the flowers aren't, you know, spread out. I'm like, still over my head. Like, yeah. if it was labeled, like it told me how it was grown, then I would know, but I still don't know. <laughs> I think that's that's an important part of that education. You know, they have uh, they have new technology now where basically, you know, I put a QR code in that jar, I can pull it up on my phone and see the grow methodologies, see all the testing results and lab it came from. I think that's that's part. I mean, we don't do I ever question if my Jack Daniels or my bullet bourbon is yeah. gonna be the same. Or do I ever look at the testing results of where it came from? No, no. I yeah, guess. Well, you know, alcohol is going to get us where we got. But yeah, but it, that gets back to that brand aspect because when you're talking about bullet bourbon, you're talking about bullet bourbon. You're talking about Coca-Cola. You're talking about Coca-Cola. That brand, that expectation, the flavor profiles. You're drinking a Starbucks coffee that's supposed to taste the same wherever Starbucks you go, and that's exceedingly difficult in the cannabis industry because you have siloed in each individual state the production methodology. 
So like the cannabis grown here has to be grown here. The cannabis grown in Colorado has got to be grown in Colorado and in Washington state and Washington state. So trying to have a brand that has consistency, whether you buy that uh, pre-roll in Chicago, in Seattle or in Denver is very difficult. I think that comes down to uh, strains. Like I, I know I've had Gorilla Glue in seven or eight states and probably Lucky Charms in the same and some type of Stardock Guava. And they were all relatively the same, but had their own different nuances. And I think this industry, unlike others, you know, we're starting with a plant that has a DNA, has a genetic profile that can be stabilized, but then that's only part of the picture. How is that genetic grown and in what environment, et cetera. So I think, you know, instead of like the beer industry or any other industry where we're taking a, a scientific process that we've been able to control over decades that we've done in labs and be able to add the same amount of ingredients from the same yeast culture or whatever it is, you know, I think we'll eventually get there, but right now it'll be really, like you're saying, difficult to find consistency across the States, even in the same strains, because quite frankly, when I was a grower, I could have bred two plants together and call it whatever I wanted. They still and do that. Being that someone who's, uh, you know, in the industry uh we're getting to the point now have you are you familiar with that color wheel from leafly that the terpene profile right you know we're getting to the point where the conversation is we're not going to have names no more it's not no more blue dream no more uh crack green crack or whatever yeah i think the green crack the street names they're they're a, a relic of prohibition yeah but they're also the profiles like uh the families like uh the fact that i can buy a blue dream here in Washington and a blue dream in California. And they're going to be about 90% DNA the same in that profile. You know, uh, that's the, the end goal, I think for the overall consumer, because we don't do that for alcohol. You know, I just look at, Oh, ABV. All right. I'm going to get fucked up tonight. But you know, with a, a good weed, when you're looking for that experience, you're looking for an actual profile. Yeah, completely agree. You know, we'll choose the the seasonal beers, even the fruity stuff for the summer. There's got to be seasonal strains. I I bet seasonal strains in another 10 years. I mean, it's very, very highly regulated right now because of the lack of using the sun and like the seasonality of it. You're not allowed to grow like that. I know in Colorado and I think also in Washington State, do they have an outdoor license in Washington State? Oh, yeah, we got outgrows. Okay, no, we don't have them in, in Illinois. You have to grow in a building. Uh, mm -hmm. And I thought that's how it was in Colorado, too. Can you have greenhouses or only for, like, uh, home use? You can definitely grow outside and you can have greenhouses. Pueblo and Durango areas have the largest uh, outdoor cultivations, but there's even a greenhouse in Denver, I believe. That's yeah. awesome. Well, I'm hoping that the Illinois regulations will be here shortly because they have the statute, you know, the secure, locked and closed facility. Does that mean a nursery or a greenhouse like, you know, provided that there's such and such specs and how are they going to address that? Who knows? Yeah, you know, like Missouri right now, they said you can do either. You can, you can grow indoor or you can grow outdoor. If you grow outdoor, it's by the number of plants. If you're growing indoor, then it's by square footage. So that's, that's ways that it can be done. And if it's outdoor, their regulations are you have to secure it with a fence that's eight foot by, you know, with a one foot barbed wire on the top with visual obstructing slats or cloth, that kind of thing. So, right. you know, 
I think eventually so much more of this is going to be grown outdoors than ever indoors. Yeah, this think about the price per gram when you're talking about the energy. I mean, you has to, why aren't we using the sun again? Oh, right. It's but, good time. Like, like in Hawaii when they passed, think about it. Hawaii's kilowatt hour price is like 10 times what it is here in Colorado. And everything wow. has to be grown indoors. Everything. But it's so, Hawaii. It's like saying, oh my gosh, this is Columbia. This weather is literally perfect for growing this flower. Indoors. <laughs> hey, Tyler, have they addressed in Colorado the uh, outdoor issue with uh, hemp and, and cannabis? Um, I believe they have. I think there's some distance restrictions. Um, though, I mean, it's miles, huh? Yeah, I thought it was in miles. It might be. Honestly, I'll have to catch up on the, the relation between the two of them, but there is some regulations going on there. And I know there's at least been um, some kind of lawsuits with, with people who aren't disclosing that they're growing hemp nearby and people lose millions of dollars of outdoor crops because it hermes and seeds out. Yeah. yeah. Hermes. But it works both ways. So, I mean, you can also True. turn the boys and the girls and then uh, now you're screwed. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I actually don't know how other industries deal with this as far as cross-pollination goes with every other plant that we grow outdoors. But Monsanto just um, filed lawsuits. Yeah, lawsuits. Okay. Well, hopefully that doesn't become our, our industry too. But well, I mean, you make it, it, it's if it's legal, you can get a plant patent on these things, and then suddenly, you know, it's like, oh, we tested your pollen; it came back with this. We uh, we are asking that you burn all your plants. They are in violating our patents. That could be the future. I think IP is going to be huge, and people are missing huge. out on it. On well, the, the, the Monsanto shit, where they sued for the uh, the farmer because his shit got cross pollinated. Right. I mean, that's it's a little excessive at this point. No, oh, no. It's like if you want to get into seed genetics, first off, the thing you need to do is Google cannabis lawyer, then click on my website, cannabisengineeringlawyer.com. And then call me. We'll talk about how plant patents work and, and formulate a theory about how you can shut down things. It's it's not the right way to do business. You know, you should really be focused on your customer and creating value. But it's the way that Monsanto has done business. Hey, it's the American way. We speak through courts, right? Yeah, uh, I don't it's know. such an American thing. Lawsuits and it's it's terrible. It is. It really is. I mean, that's that's one of the things when you because a lot of people look at lawyers, uh, not even like doctors, people would be like, oh, I really need to go to the doctor and they'll still not go. They're like, I don't need a lawyer. I understand how to read. That's literally the thought process of a lot of people. And, and I'm like, OK, good luck, bro. Yeah, yeah I, I honestly, we have people that do that with these uh, state license applications. Yeah, good like, luck. I read, I read the regulations. I know how to run a dispensary. I ran a, a Starbucks. I yeah. yeah, I ran a Starbucks. <laughs> I can do this. Yeah. Um, well, I, mean, you know, I always say as a consultant, hire a consultant. And definitely I love lawyers because if my client doesn't have a lawyer on their team, they're at a, in a huge risk, huge risk, huge risk. Because like what's three pillars of legal cannabis, diversion of supply, diversion of proceeds, and you don't have a lawyer who, who's going to who's got a duty to report anything here? You know, if there was a crime that's being committed, you know, not nobody. OK. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll even say that uh, some people like to go through and, um, you know, say that they can handle that on their own, regardless of what it is. You know, same thing for, like I said, the applications. This this is not a regular retail market. You know, like people think that if I ran a liquor store. I could easily run a dispensary. 
parts of that may be true. And like I said, hire a consultant, but hire them for the things you need them for, Correct. not the whole thing. Like even, even us, um, there will be parts, you guys, everybody brings strengths to the team. You know, they have backgrounds in other industries, money, maybe property, whatever it is, bring to the table um, people that you need and fill, fill your weaknesses, you know, with lawyers, with consultants, but don't ever do it. Cause a lot of people will just shell out money um, because a consultant says they'll, they'll do the whole thing. This is our fee, no negotiations. You're getting what you get, you know, and uh, I, that's not, that's not beneficial to everybody in that situation. Speaking of a uh, uh, shell out money, what do you think of the Mad Men getting involved in Colorado now? They just bought uh, another huge uh, company. I think the Enron of cannabis will flicker later uh, in the industry. That's that's how I consider MedMen is the Enron of cannabis. I work on cannabis. Oh, hang on a second. Enron was a company that was famous for using an accrual methodology of booking their revenues to off, you know, to 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 lie through their uh, shifty accounting. And I've seen um, people that are kind of like promoting the number of licenses that they have as uh, an industry, like for creating a valuation on their price, which is just fluff. Are you saying MedMen's doing something similar, or can you unpack what you mean by the Enron of the industry? Yeah, um, you know, they think they think it's a real estate play. So they think they have the best real estate in places like West Hollywood and New York. Quite frankly, w what liquor stores have the best real estate? It doesn't matter because you're going to go to the one that's closest to you or you're going to go to the one that's on your way to wherever you're going. That's part of it. Part of the other reason is their, their executive level team is taking multi-million dollars in salary, um, like which is ridiculous. And then also, you know, they're not putting the effort into winning these competitive licenses. Their West Hollywood location will be gone because they did not win a license in West Hollywood to operate. So wow. I think, I think um, the fact that they're, that they're fluffing up their valuation based on licenses and locations, licenses are not always going to be competitive. So the value of licenses is going down daily. Um, and real estate is the same thing. We're going to be able to have but dispensaries in the same places we have liquor stores and no one says that, oh man, that liquor store in Times Square, you know, as opposed to the one a block away from it makes incredibly more revenue to evaluate that company at the way they do. It just, it just, there's a mismatch there for me. And um, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't like their branding. First off, they went with med, which they're not serving exclusively medical markets and men in in an era where gender is one of the most fluid things in our society. So I think there's a lot of reasons they're not going to be successful and uh, marketing is probably the lowest tier of that. But. Well, they infl there was an issue last year, I believe they, they about the inflation of the numbers, you know, or <clears throat> I think the only thing they had recently was that one commercial that, you know, made them stand out for a minute. South and then Park, it was, The South Park, we did a good parody of it. Man, I really hope South Park does something for social equity. That was a cool integrity uh, weed. Integrity. Integrity. You guys see that? Yep. Oh, yeah. That's that's oh, going yeah. in the article. That's that's how I'm starting it. Like you know, this third pillar now to uh, legalization. You know, diversion of supply, diversion of proceeds, and now social equity. Finally, legalization's got integrity. Uh, I'll I'll even say I went into Medman's West Hollywood shop and I bought one of those uh, canagars. The oh the six hundred dollar canagar or something like that. No, think of like a cheaper version. Like okay. I think they're called dank woods, where they basically okay. take right. two grams, a, a half gram of hash, and they roll it in the backwoods with a glass tip. But right. um, you know, the shop wasn't 
crazy impressive to me. There was nothing wrong with it. Uh, but, you know, their order fulfillment was interesting and the people were friendly. But come to find out that I know a person that works there and they're vastly underpaid. They don't get the time off that they need. And the, the people there, you know, they're not mutually aligned in their goals. The company is not somebody they enjoy working for. Well, I mean, I think any big player needs a, and I've never heard of anything from MedMen except for that freaking commercial about social equity or even helping reform. Like this weekend, uh, I'll be helping out at Hempfest. Uh, we're going to be raising money for pot prisoners uh, all yeah. three days. You're the and, uh, social equity uh, warrior, Miggy. You've been fighting for the, the the people that have been victimized and incarcerated by this drug war as long as I've known you. It's about yeah. 10 years. And I'm sure you, you go back before that, too. You've been fighting on this for, what, 15, 20 yeah, I mean, it's just this ridiculous sore. You know, it's like a, a, a civil rights type issue that's definitely been in violation of all our and it was uh, the civil rights issue that was the most trivialized. And it, yeah. was, it was like you have to wait your turn. Where you have to go first, and now that has to go first. And then you're like, really, you're just going to keep arresting these people, and you're just going to keep making headlines that are all jokes because that's what you see of us. We're just a bunch of jokes to you. I'm trying to find because we have so the sponsor. We're going to have a, a dunk tank this year, too. Oh, that's and, awesome. And there's actually a big company paying for all. So all the proceeds are going to be raised for Freedom Grow, which is a, uh, a nonprofit uh, set up by uh, uh, Dr. Dina, who was Snoop Dogg's uh, uh, dealer, and uh, um, the woman who inspired Weeds, and Stephanie Landa, who's a uh, pot prisoner. But there's actual a company that's sponsoring, and I would like to give them a shout-out if I could find the information, but uh, I'm just looking right now at all our – posters and you know what we didn't mention that goddamn company well you know that'll be rectified immediately i'm sure because we'll be live next wait it's this friday holy crap that's friday. and by that's tomorrow i mean it's literally 48 hours from now uh so yeah i get in pretty darn late and then i fly out pretty darn late but um i don't know it's the west coast so hopefully i'll take it with a relayed back atmosphere yeah yeah no it's good shit uh but yeah um on that note, though, I do have to go. I, I, have, I have a 3 p.m. consult that I need to get to. But uh, I want to thank you, Tyler, for coming on the show and explaining uh, the legal cannabis industry nationwide. You guys have won licenses in all those green states back there? Um, I hesitate to use the term one because some of them were non-competitive. But those are all the states that we've worked in and we have one of the best track records in the industry. Far out, man. Nice. Appreciate you coming on the show. Looking forward to learning more about you guys. Hey, Lauren. Lauren, you out there, man? There she is. Hey, oh. what's going on? All right. Take us out. Please. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis news. Uh, Tyler, where can we follow what's going on at Canna Advisors? Uh, thinkcanna.com or at Canna Advisors on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. All right, guys. We'll see you next Wednesday. Bye. Bye. Sweet.